You're listening to All the Best. I'm Mel Chun, filling in for Helena Baroni-Peters. I grew up in the 90s on a diet of old comic books passed down from my brother. He's 10 years older and grew up in the 80s, so you can imagine that the comics were somewhat problematic. My absolute favourite was Tintin, the brave little reporter of indeterminate age who would always end up getting rescued by his dog and seemingly never actually wrote any of the stories that he became entangled in. Tintin was my first inspiration for becoming a journalist. Not only that, it was a massive influence on the way I draw comics. I even have the same hair, an obnoxious little blonde quiff in the front. But of course, we now know that Herge, the creator, was a massive racist. Tintin is the most anemic little white saviour ever known, And looking back at those comics now, the racial caricatures make me squirm. It can be hard to reconcile with the things that made us so happy in the past that we now know really weren't that helpful or were even harmful. In our first story, Danny comes to terms with her teenage love of rom-coms. And just a heads up, this story contains a mention of sexual assault. Back in 2007, Kevin Rudd announced a slew of new education policies. This is an education revolution. And the most famous or infamous policy was the laptops. Thanks to Kevin, when I reached year nine, I was given a laptop of my very own, which I thought was great. But at the time, there were some parents who seemed concerned. You don't actually know always what they're doing and what they've got access to. You go into their room to see what they're doing and the screen will be slammed down. Honestly, looking back, that concern was totally justified. I'm not sure about the other kids, but I certainly wasn't using my Kevin Rudd-provided laptop for educational purposes. Why would I be doing schoolwork when I had a USB full of TV and movies to watch? This was, after all, the first time in my life that I was able to watch what I wanted whenever I wanted. No more, wait until the footy's over, Danielle. Let your brother watch play school. Oh, well, you should be doing your homework anyway. Finally, I'd found freedom and I was spoiled for choice. One girl in my grade had downloaded everything. Vampire shows, reality TV, horror movies. I had it all. But by far, my favourite thing to watch was romantic comedies. Love is in the air. Anything starring Hugh Grant, Jennifer Lopez or Meg Ryan, I'd be watching that five times in a week. Extreme, I know. But year nine was tough. My skin was pimply, my hair frizzy, I didn't understand the playground politics or my math homework, and my feelings of inadequacy were confirmed that year when I was cast as a tree in Rockersteadford. Rom-coms offered me an escape to a world where the main character always had an amazing job, a chic New York City apartment, 
clear skin and perfectly styled hair. No frizz, no flyaways. Eventually, my infatuation with rom-com fantasies became less intense. I started to feel less like the kind of person who would be cast as a tree and more like the main character of the story. I didn't need to experience dates and parties vicariously through movies anymore because I actually had plans on the weekend. But then, last year, the pandemic shut everything down and I no longer had plans on the weekend. So one night, feeling nostalgic as I scrolled through Netflix, I found myself browsing the rom-com category, thinking that maybe I could once again turn to that idealistic, dreamy world to escape reality. I went on a deep binge, letting the Netflix algorithm feed me rom-com after rom-com. You have me at hello? I like you, just as you are. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking you to love her. I want all of you forever. I must say I hate the way I don't hate you. You'll find that love actually is all around. It just didn't feel the same as it had when I was 14. As much as I tried, I just couldn't fully escape my own conscience. What did he say? Why are there only white people in this movie? Isn't that supposed to be New York? That kiss was not consensual. Definitely not appropriate behavior for the workplace. Oh my god, he's old enough to be her dad. The more I watched, the more I realized the dreamy world of rom-coms isn't actually that dreamy. There are some obvious issues with classic rom-coms that I was already pretty aware of, but I discovered there's also some more subtle tropes at play. There's the nice guy who always gets rewarded, even though he's not actually that nice. You know him. In Love Actually, he shows up on Christmas Eve with cue cards to profess his love for his best friend's wife. Hi. And for his efforts, instead of being met with a restraining order, Kira Knightley chases him down the street and gives him a kiss. Then there's the Determinator guy, who believes he can turn a no into a yes. She doesn't need any space. She may be into her career, but what she's really saying? Possibly. Try harder, stupid. Normalizing the idea that if you just keep harassing women, They'll eventually give in. You wanna dance with me? No. Why not? Because I don't want Remember to. Ryan Gosling in the notebook? After being rejected, he climbs the Ferris wheel and dangles from the top by one arm in front of Rachel McAdams, threatening to seriously injure or kill himself if she doesn't say yes to a date. Alright, well you leave me no other choice then. Okay, okay, fine. I'll go out with you. Well, don't do me any favors. No, no, I want to. You want it. Yes! You want it. Say it. I wanna go out with you! Say it again. I wanna go out with you! Alright, alright, we'll go out. 
Then there's the Ugly Duckling makeover montage. You know how it goes. The leading lady just isn't lady enough. So she gets a makeover. You will be her hair is straightened, her eyebrows are plucked, blush is dappled on her cheeks, out with the glasses, in with the contacts, and a much more feminine wardrobe. As a 14-year-old, I'm not sure I fully clued into the messaging behind this trope. But watching these scenes now, I get the message that if you don't reflect Eurocentric beauty standards, have designer clothes, and exist within the gender binary, then bad luck, buddy. You're just not worthy of love. Even more disturbing, male validation is so often tied into the ugly duckling transformation. In the grand reveal scene, the camera pans straight to the reaction of men, socializing the little girls watching to view their own bodies through an observer perspective. I realized in horror that I totally absorbed this problematic messaging, and I reckon some of the young men I know did too. Far from hitting me with a sense of sweet nostalgia, these scenes brought back traumatic experiences, like being sexually harassed in the workplace, a non-consensual kiss from an acquaintance that in his mind was a totally appropriate gesture of love, being chased down an elevator by a guy who just wanted to talk to me because apparently he'd never seen anyone so beautiful. I realized that so many times I've felt scared and unsafe were instances of guys acting the exact way that's normalized in rom-coms. My mum, a Gen Xer concerned about cancel culture, is always saying stuff like, but that's just what it was like back then. And sure, these movies are a product of their time, but that doesn't mean that we can't re-watch them through a critical lens and acknowledge that the popular tropes from the rom-com golden age are deeply flawed and honestly messed me up. I guess I did get an education of sorts thanks to my school laptop. You could say that all that time spent sitting on my Hannah Montana beanbag watching rom-coms, I was looking at case studies of unrealistic and unhealthy romantic relationships. And I did learn something. I know for sure that I never want anyone to threaten to throw themselves off a ferris wheel for me. Even if they look like Ryan Gosling. That story was produced by Danny Stewart. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Mel Chun. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Fake judge and veteran podcaster John Hodgman once said, nostalgia is the most toxic impulse. 
and generally I'm inclined to agree. But sometimes, especially during times of rapid change, it can also be a much needed comfort. In our next story, Wing discovers an artist with a beautiful way of memorializing the past. It was last September that I first saw Davis Miniature Arts. It was another boring day during the lockdown, and I missed the streets so much. I opened Facebook, clicked into a group called Old Shops Australia, and started scrolling. Then I saw a photo of a tattoo shop. It was the Vic Market Tattoo Studio in North Melbourne. The shop had been there since 1992. On its grey wall, there was a poster of a man holding a bottle in the middle of the sea. It looked so pretty that I almost thought it was real. The Vic Market tattoo in the photo was actually a miniature. It was posted by its creator, an artist called David Hurrigan. In the next few months, I saw him post another two miniatures. One was the Goose Book Arcade in Sydney. The other one was the Polygrony's Espresso Bar in Melbourne. Who is this man behind these miniatures? Why he's so into old shops that he even makes a model for them? Last month, I had a chance to visit David at his house in Yarrafield. It was a Saturday morning. David's eight-year-old daughter, Phoebe, was also at home. David used to be a full-time graphic designer and arts director. Four years ago, his partner, who stayed at home and looked after Phoebe, was given a job offer. David was happy to take more childcare duties and step down from his full-time job. He also decided to pick up his hobby of making miniature arts. The way I got into this was I had always built models my whole life and I kind of you know, started when I was a kid, gave it up when I discovered girls as a teenager, came back to it in my 20s. I had enjoyed building kits, but I always felt like I was building something that someone else had designed. So, you know, anyone could go out and buy that and put it together. And also, it didn't have any significance to me personally. And so I started building things of my own, just, you know, using materials to build my own structures. The first miniature David did in his life was a spacecraft. He used a two-litre soft drink bottle, some plastics and other bits and pieces to build it. I proved to myself that I could actually do it and I could create something from nothing, which I found really, really amazingly satisfying. And then I thought, there are all these beautiful buildings around. They speak to me. I, I feel a real connection with those. Why not build something that I feel a connection to? It usually takes David three to six weeks to finish a miniature. David grew up in Sydney and later moved to Melbourne. For him, old buildings and shops were part of his life. He remembered when he was a uni student in Sydney. He loved wandering at the Goose Book Arcade. From David's works, you can also tell so many details about the old shops. On his dining table, I saw a miniature of the Goose Book Arcade. Through his window, you could even see the book covers so clearly. On the rooftop, there was even a bird nest 
with a tiny egg in the middle. It's all about tiny, tiny details. When I build them, they start off just as you know, plain walls. The, the process that I do to build any of them is I'll generally try and go and see the original and take photos and take measurements and do some sketches. Then I come back to my workbench and work out how to miniaturize it and how to scale it down to a good size. And then I start building. And, and yeah, when, you, when you're building it, you build sort of the basic structure first. But it's only when you start adding the details, when you start adding things like the little alarm boxes or the signs or, you know, the window frames, that's when it starts to come to life. Before that, it's just, you know, boring plain surfaces. Mm. It's those little details like pipes in the walls or guttering or things like that that really is the fun bit, the bit that brings it to life. David collects materials from daily life for his miniatures, such as sushi box. He led me upstairs to his studio. This is my workspace. This is where I produce them. It's a really tiny space. My actual bench space is only about 40 centimeters wide, and that rather dictates how big the pieces are that I produce. There are lots of books here at the back. Oh, and lots of cats. <laughs> yeah. I do, I collect military hats. I don't know why, it's just a thing I'm interested in. So I do have a collection of those and lots and lots of history books. Yeah. But I can see there's a really big collection of these medals as well. There are. Um, the military medals and mm -hmm. history books. There's this boat here, right next to the window. Yep. I've, so it's a big sailing boat. It's probably about 60 centimeters long and I've had that for 20 years. I love it. Anything small I like. So I used to build, I've always built models since I was a kid, model kits. And I have some of them in my workspace, and it's things like planes and tanks and stuff. Can you introduce a little bit about your decks? So I've got, I've got a computer on one side, which is where I can look at all my reference photos and kind of get the details of what I need to build. Um, like I said, for every single one, I tend to take lots and lots of photos and sketches and measurements. Um, so it's all about the detail. You know, I try and make them as close as possible to what it looked like on that particular day as I can. It, to me, it's a real snapshot of a particular moment in time. So the weeds, if there are weeds in the front, the weeds will be the right height from that day. You know, six months later, it might be different. Um, I also have... It's a pretty messy workspace. The actual area where I produce them is really messy. Um, and it's just a mix of tools and glues and paints and paintbrushes and tweezers and sticks. And yeah, it's, it's a bit of everything. It does look really messy and I do lose things occasionally. <laughs> I really need to clean it up. It's terrible. David showed me some of the tools and materials he used in his work. The sums of them were hypnotic in their repetition. Um, I use wire quite often, so to sort of snip the wire, it's quite harsh. Every, 
every miniature I build has a different challenge of something in it I won't have built before. How can I reproduce that on a tiny scale? And that's the part that I love. I guess I find that challenging and it sometimes keeps me awake at night thinking, how am I going to do this one thing? How am I going to do this one thing? And that's the part of the job that I love. Yeah, it can be frustrating, but it's also something I find very satisfying once I do crack it. Yeah. Are you working on any project? I am. So right behind you there. Um, I'm, at the moment, I'm building a miniature, which is a warehouse. It's a double-fronted warehouse. So you can see here the, the blue foam that it's mm. built out of. It's really, really light, and it just you know, carves really nicely. So all these bricks are carved individually, and, yeah, together they form a brick wall. So, yeah, the, the current subject is a warehouse. It's a sort of 1930s warehouse. And Franco Cozzo, the guy who's famous in Melbourne, he, he sells... Italian furniture and this was his first warehouse in Melbourne back in the 50s and 60s and it's just something about it it's beautiful so at the moment it's only about half finished once I put the big sign writing on the front it'll really come to life and there's really big gaudy lettering and it's really a little bit tacky and beautiful at the same time and it's actually quite soft it's, I, I thought usually miniature would be very heavy but mm. they're not they are very light, yeah. Once once I finish building them, I put them uh, I put them onto a, a base which is made of plaster, and that's really nice and heavy for them to sit really securely. And it also means you can lift them around. If you just lifted them by holding the building itself, I think they would be you know, they'd fall apart fairly quickly. And the next challenge for me then is to take it from looking a bit like a doll's house or a bit like a toy, and to then make it as realistic as I possibly can. And that's where I sort of I weather the building and I chip away at the paint and I put streaks of rust on it and you know streaks from rain and grime and dirt um, and that's where it really steps across that line from being a bit toy-like to being quite realistic interesting yeah. yeah my general view is if I can take a really close-up photo of it and show that to someone and they think it's a real building then I've done my I've done my work really well and your work are praised by a lot of people online yeah like I, it, I said earlier it surprises me how much interest it gets and it really does, it's lovely, but it still surprises me every single time. I started off building just my local neighbourhood and then I started doing just a bit more of the inner west and now I've started building things in the city itself. And Melbourne's just such a, a history-aware city. I think there are a lot of people who do feel a sense of nostalgia and who do love old Melbourne. And, yeah, I, I don't want to stop building of new buildings and I don't want to be a Luddite and say no one should knock down an old building some old buildings are rubbish and they should go I'm the first to say it but a lot of the old ones that that are in danger of being knocked down I think I'd like to try and preserve that or at least make a record of it so that it's not completely gone once the physical building has been knocked down. In March last year David held his first solo exhibition of his miniature arts in Sydney for him, the exhibition itself was a new discovery. He never realised so many people were interested in old shops like him. And it was my first solo exhibition and it was at a gallery in Newport. And I had 10 pieces there and I thought you know, a few people will turn up and lots and lots and lots of people turned up. And the reactions I've had tend to be people saying that either, oh, you know, I remember that place, I live right near it, I really love it. I think... What has surprised me is that my aesthetic of liking old buildings that are falling down really appeals to a lot of people. It's really surprised me. I thought it was just me who had a weird thing for crumbling buildings. There's a real sense of nostalgia in what I do, and I think it taps into a lot of people's sense of nostalgia as well. I've met a lot of people who 
say, oh, you should build this or that, or uh, I find it fascinating that people have a constant stream of suggestions for me, which I love. Like, it means I get to find out about these little places that I don't know about. And it just, you know, it just feeds into my nerdy love of these old buildings. I kind of wish that I could produce them faster because then I could do more of them and, you know, I could get through more of the things that I love because each one is like a little love letter to a building that I like. And then it came to the lockdowns. David's partner worked from home while he continued homeschooling his daughter. It brought him more challenges to make miniature arts as well. He tended to visit the original sites before making the works, but now he could only rely on online photographs. One that I built, it was an institution in Footscray, it was the Olympic Donuts van. So this guy came from Greece in the 1950s, opened up a donut van right next to Footscray train station, and he was there for 60 years. And that, when I built it, uh, it was gone. It got taken away in about 2016 when they redeveloped the train station there. And so I couldn't visit the real thing and I could only work from photos online. And it's a challenge, definitely. I'd much prefer to go and see the real thing and, you know, be there in person and, and get a feel for it in person. But you can do it. With a bit of guesswork and a bit of, you know, cleverness, you can do it. One of the hardest things was trying to work out the dimensions of the donut van. And in one photo, there was a milk crate in front of it. And I thought, well, okay, there's a milk crate. So milk crates come in a standard size, so I can look up the standard size of a milk crate. And if that milk crate is three centimetres long in that photo, then that means that the width of the van must be X centimetres much more. And so from that one known thing, I could work out the dimensions of the rest of it, which was a real nerdy breakthrough. (laughs) David had a really good relationship with his daughter, Phoebe. How do you feel about this work? I feel like it's amazing how he can make something that detailed in three to six weeks. He made this Olympic donut van and that was my favourite. Why, why is your favourite? Um, just because it's had so many little details inside. Any particular shops or places that you want your dad to make an Asia? Um, no, not really. I think he really knows what kinds of ones that he likes and I feel like the ones that I'd like, he wasn't particularly do on his own. David asked Phoebe what miniature shop she wanted to receive as a birthday present. Hmm, maybe a pet store. This year, David has a few plans for his miniature arts. He will have a group exhibition in September, and he plans to make more arts related to his local area. For me, it's something that I love to make. It's something that brings me joy every moment that I'm building them. And I guess in terms of the subject, it's, yeah, it is that nostalgia. It's that sense of this is a beautiful building and I like how old it is. And it's a sense of trying to catch things before they disappear. You know, it's a little act of preservation and taking these things that are really unloved or overlooked and capturing them. Um, One of my pieces, the donut van, has gone into the permanent collection of the State Library of Victoria. And that brings me such happiness to think that it's going to be there in 100 years' time. You know, it's going to be 
permanently preserved and curators are going to look after it forever. And that just makes me so happy to, to think that, you know, in a hundred years someone could look at it and it will, you know, blow their mind too, hopefully. That story was produced by Wing Kwong. Ollie Krusek was the supervising producer. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramongu lands. This episode was mixed and compiled by Oliver Duke. Our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers. Our web producer is Connor Hughes, and Lydia Yosifova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the editorial manager, Mel Chun, filling in this week for Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>